Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Today our guest is Nick Hoffman, but before that, a couple of announcements. Announcement number one is that Josie and I, plus special guests, are going to do a tour of Australia and New Zealand in March and April next year, where we'll be going to Auckland, Christchurch, Wellington, Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. So if you go to the website cosmicgenome.com, you will find on the front page somewhere information about where we're going and what we're doing. Before that, a couple of things to tell you one at the end of this show we'll announce this week's winner of a box of books from our producer trent and from josie and from our collection trying to make some kind of space in our house also today there are three of nick offerman's latest books to give away all you have to do to get the book is what do they have to do oh listen to the end of the show and then you'll find out how to win the book goes to pick up litter all the time. Oh yeah, and they yeah. named and, and, a yeah, truck after him. They named a truck after him. I hadn't realised till recently this whole thing where, because I really want to get him for this obviously. So oh, can we, we talk about, are you, a George Saunders, are you a George Saunders I was gonna, fan? I was planning to talk about that book. Oh amazing. Great. We're dear friends. Well he, he's um, He's my favourite. I, I by the way you joined us mid-conversation. Writer. Welcome to Book Shambles. Josie's talking as is our guest uh, Nick Hoffman and it's worked out really well because uh, he just noticed that Josie's holding a George Saunders book. He likes George Saunders too any regular listeners will know we like George Saunders yeah. continue your conversation oh, um, um, so he's a friend of yours oh my word well he I'm such a massive fan of his uh, he's kind of my favourite uh, contemporary writer yeah me too and when I wrote my second book Gumption um, part of the of my ulterior motive was to try and meet some of my heroes and so I got a hold of George and uh we met in New York, and he couldn't have been... He, he recognized something in me. Um, he grew up uh, in a suburb of Chicago, very working class, and didn't really come into his wheelhouse until a little later in life. He worked a variety of different jobs, which is something we kind of shared, even though I was always plugging away on theater stages. I was a, a carpenter and whatnot. So we, we bonded it in a way I never could have expected and sort of became immediate pals. Uh, in fact, I was texting with him about being excited about coming to do this. Uh, oh, my God. We, we sh- we're like girlfriends. And all, it's weird. Also, Jeff Tweedy, the same thing happened right. in that same book, Gumption. Uh, I made some other new friends, which was wonderful, but somehow George and Jeff and I formed a weird three-way of man love (laughs) that we're very open about, and all of our wives are okay with so far. (laughs) What was... Do you you find... I was going to... No, Jesse, you go. No, no. I was just going to ask about creative sensibilities, because I have this thing where, like, if you really, really try with your work, then people that you love's work, there is a chance... Oh, sorry. If you really try with your work, there is a chance that the people that you love who make their own work will like it because you will share a similar sensibility. That's all. <laughs> well, I, what I wonder, how do you, do you have a balance where, because I think for both of us, we've been lucky where we've ended up working with people that we really admire and some of them going back to like when we were kids and then you're just having a pizza with them and everything's normal. But how do you compartmentalise? Because I think there is a way where one side of you goes, oh my God, it's George Saunders, whose work I admire, but... You also can have a per- perfectly normal friendship, but there's another little area of your brain that goes, fan man lives here, yeah. and guy going, yeah, let's get some olives, 
is here happy as well. Uh, no, that you're. That's that's very astute. I and I am very aware of that. Uh, for example, when I read George's new novel called Lincoln and the Bardo, which is astonishing. Yeah. It, he's literally created a new form. <laughs> I mean, besides just his prose style, like from the first line, you're like, oh, I'm so in, I'm so involved. He's he's got such a wonderfully. Uh, unique and original voice that is so uh so wonderfully satirical but also like dripping with empathy mm. so he he makes fun of you the way your favorite uncle does where they tickle you to the point where you're screaming and you're not sure if it's from delight or pain <laughs> um and uh and so w- with somebody like george i a- absolutely have to do that where we speak we talk like we're just old high school buddies, and uh, because we do have we do have this weird connection of of coming from the same area and and coming from the same uh, social strata where we wanted to do something in the arts, but we were working in in the labor class, and and some and both had the good fortune to find hit on the right thing where suddenly we were getting to prosper in our chosen artistic fields and um and then when i read his stuff i have to go to that other compartment and say oh god and i i kind of feel like with him i feel like it's a sibling where it's like okay i don't want to let my my brother or sister know how good looking they are because it'll just go to their head but but i do you know i i do communicate to him how moved i am by his stuff also, brother and sister saying how good looking they are is, is a lot, lot of psychological issues there, which can because if they're already arrogant and then they start to think you're attracted to them, yeah, and then there's a whole horrible revengeous tragedy from the 18th century ready to be made. <laughs> you don't want to do that. No. The uh, this is we'll, so we want to talk about your your new book, uh, and then we're going to want to talk about lots of other things as well. But it seems looking at stuff about you that. You're seen in some ways as being both you and Megan as almost abnormal because you do things which are normal. <laughs> and so, my God, he can make things. How the hell can someone who works in LA and he he he's he's a star, but he can make stuff? People who are stars don't make stuff. They do jigsaws. How can they do? So suddenly, there's this world where anything which is not a kind of crystal drinking behind the red rope lifestyle right. is. Incredi- incredibly idiosyncratic. The fact that you with your dogs and your jigsaw puzzles and making wonderful, sometimes kind of a mixture of, of the, the ornate nature of, of nature, I suppose, looking at some of the tables that I've seen that you've made. Sure. And that scene is being bizarre. It, it is strange. Uh, also, just the fact that we've remained married for longer than 15 minutes in, in show business uh, excites a lot of comment, um, which is actually what our this comedy show that we're touring is kind of about. It's taking the piss out of that idea by saying, "Yes, w- this is the greatest love story ever told." <laughs> yeah. and, and here's why. Um, so you're like Charlton Heston and his wife. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> have, you got, have you got a long history of writing together? Of right? Um, not really. I mean. Uh, Wonderfully, I'm I'm 46 and Megan is 57, and we both come from theater, and we you know uh, with with uh, the the commensurate ups and downs, we've had a, a nice career working 
in theater and TV and film. And only during Parks and Rec did I begin to be invited to colleges as though I were a stand-up. And at first I demurred and said, I, I don't do that. I'm a, I'm a theater actor. Yeah. And then I said, wait, how many kids? And they said 2,000. And I said, I would like to speak to 2,000 kids. So then I started writing material. And she ha she's always had a wonderful band. She's got a great band coming here next April to the Royal Festival Hall. What's their name? Nancy and Beth. Okay. They're the greatest. They're so fun. Uh, Megan and uh, has a, uh, this other beautiful, talented young woman. Megan's 57, Stephanie's 27, but they're like two Twinkies on the stage, and they perform Megan's choreography and sing wow. harmonies. They're so good. They're like the Andrews sisters on acid. So... Sometimes, so we would tour together sometimes, and yeah. some, suddenly I'm a humorist, and I'm writing, you know, things to try and make people laugh. And what I'll, was the first stuff that you wrote like that about? Oh, I had written a couple songs because it was something that that was percolating for years. Like someday I'd love to make people laugh with a guitar. So I wrote a song. My first song I wrote for Megan, and it was called the Rainbow Song for her fiftieth birthday. So that, that dates it. That was seven years ago I wrote my first song. And um, my friend Tig Nataro had me come try a couple things in, in a stand-up festival. And so uh, I started with, you know, I don't find myself particularly funny in the way that I find great stand-ups funny. But I uh, come from a sort of tradition of farmer politicians where... I can sort of tell it like it is, but make people laugh with some sort of, you know, some sort of poor sign witticism. And uh, <laughs> and so I sort of started there. I had I came up with this list of ten tips for young people for prosperous living. Right. And that's the broccoli. I always try to lace the show with uh, something substantial and good for you, and then tr trick you into eating it by. Wrapping it, it up in, in cookie dough, as it were, yeah. That's like that great collection of um, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, all of his different addresses he oh, did at universities, yeah. the, if this isn't nice, what is? Yeah. Yeah, which is such a lovely collection. I, I think they've only I, just I brought it for it my out. brother when he graduated. The, uh, I brought it for my sister, and then I thought, no, she can't have it, and I've kept it. And it's, it's just, but he had that great knack of, the, the kind of, I'm sorry, we always bring up Kurt Vonnegut as well, but it's just the simplicity. And then when you look at what he was writing, you think, I, it almost seems too simple. Yeah. And then you realise that the artfulness of yeah. being able to create that kind of level of delight and that kind of demand for kindness. Mm -hmm. But him um, and George Saunders are very similar mm. for me. Like, uh, George Saunders has got that bit where he's like, be grateful for every second you're not screaming out in pain. Which yeah. sounds really awful, but it's also really joyful and right. But well, it's and, yeah, George has that published uh, commencement address called, by the way, congratulations, by the way. And it was an address that he delivered at Syracuse only maybe four years ago. Yeah. And you can also get get him reading it. Uh, yeah, I think I've heard. As an audio bit, and it's it's right up the same alley where he just breaks it all down to it doesn't matter. You know, congratulations, you've made it to this this watermark where you've graduated. But what what really matters in the long run? You know, you you're going to try and make some money, and some of you will do amazing things. But just, let's just try and be nice to each other when it comes to the, to the end of the day. Um, it's it's funny. Megan and I do feel very lucky that uh, that we are allowed to uh, to exist as 
normal people in the world of uh, of Ferraris and and cocaine and I, apparently cocaine is no longer where it's at. There are new uh, oh, that's disappointing. I was going to get into it. Well, uh, I guess there's uh, there's some from some television programs I've seen. There's something called Molly. <laughs> oh, in England, it's called Mandy. Mandy. Uh, it's a different what the girl. return of Mandrax? <laughs> what? Molly's I uh, Mandy. I do you know I started talking about I mentioned MDMA three times in my show recently, but not not in any like as if I take it just like oh I go to a festival and my favorite thing is seeing fun mums on MDMA in front of their kids yeah. and I can't bear it or something like that. And a friend of mine, this is such a detour. Sorry, a friend of mine tweeted me and was like, my. I had to bring my stepmom to your show and she is really doesn't agree with your politics and I was really worried she wouldn't like it. But then you were doing karaoke at the start and so she did like it and at the very end she just leant over and said, What's MDMA? And I was like, that is See, a I really Sorry, enjoy having to that age now. I've I definitely noticed this morning I was looking at various things in kind of mass culture and even political culture and going, I, I don't comprehend it anymore. I can't place it. And, and I don't care. I just have to try. This is what I wonder, because Josie's younger than us, but we are, I'm, I'm, I'm 47. You're 46. That point where you were saying you started writing songs seven years ago, you you know, the carpentry and then the theatre and then TV and film that I think at this age, You've reached the point where the reason a lot of people become very bitter and very angry is all the dreams you had when you used to just like be lying with your friends in sleeping bags going, hey, imagine what it's going to be like when. This is the point where you are beginning to realise that either those dreams will never occur mm-hmm. or that your life has been a terrible failure and it must just now drag on for another 30 or 40 years. I don't yeah. feel like that. I feel like I, I look and I go, it's not what I imagined was going to happen, but fuck, there's loads of really good things. And yeah. I, I'm generally... and I wonder how you feel about the the difference between that the kids kind of you know out camping and talking about what's going to happen i i think that i i love that observation um i you know i think uh you eventually come to realize i think for most people that the, those dreams in some way were shit <laughs> you know uh, the dreams i had you know were i'm, I'm not a, a terribly deep person and so my, my dreams as a teenager were fueled by the early music videos of the mid '80s, and I was like, "Oh, I, I, I live in this farm family in Illinois. It would be amazing to go to this place called California, you know, and and like live in a David Lee Roth video." And and I had I had to erode that idea almost into my early 30s, where I was still kind of looking for that lifestyle where I, I wouldn't feel like I had made it until... Is that, is that like girls with long blonde yeah, hair? Yeah, girls and like, in bikinis yeah, and like like you, uh, American flag bikinis, sure. right? Yeah, that okay. Ideally, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you can find them. And, um, and like you'd be playing pool and then they go like, ah, and like shake oh, their head. Oh, shit, you've put Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar on me exactly. in my head now and I can't get it out. There it is. Oh. So then do you feel like the things that you've actually done in your life and career have been so much more fulfilling than what you dreamed well, of. Well, sure. I mean, that... <laughs> Longer than three and a half minutes. That's true. Well, and, you know, as soon as adulthood sets in, which I think for me really took hold in my early 30s, you just realize that's the life of an asshole. <laughs> you're yeah. like, oh, no, that would be horrible. Um, and, and so, yes, uh, I mean, I still... I, I, uh, I don't... I'm not very ambitious. I don't have... 
dreams or like, you know, it's funny when people say, what's your dream role or what's the thing you haven't gotten to do? And I never think like that. I just look at whatever my next project is. And the nice thing about wearing a few different hats is that if nothing's happening in on the film front, I can always uh, go to my shop and say, okay, what's what's my next dream build? Or what's, what's the next play Megan and I are going to work on at the theater? Um, and it's, I, I find that much more fulfilling to just follow my gut. And it's paid off yeah. in spades. Do you feel like being practically creative like informs the other things that you do, like writing and stuff like that? Sure. I mean, it's something that I that I write about, and it's kind of the the wellspring of this third book, which is about woodworking. Is that um, I, I just became friends with this guy Matthew Crawford, who wrote uh, Shop Craft as Soul Shop Craft. Shit. Shop class as soul craft. Oh my is, god! Is, is the title, and he's he's a motor he's a he's a think tank uh, guy. Oh, like shop classes in in high school. Yeah. Sorry. And, and he uh, he gave up. He he was a DC philosophy think tank guy who dabbled in fixing old Triumph motorcycles, and he was sick of the white collar like cubicle life. Uh, of his day job and decided to give it up and just become this motorcycle mechanic which which meant less income but he was so happy mm. his life was so rich that he wrote a book about it which became a huge hit and he's written a second book called The World Beyond Your Head and his so it's it's a oh that's it's, why I know. I've read that yeah it's an amazing book it's really yeah. amazing and it's it just he he traces uh you know, he sort of tangibly traces the history of human attention, wow. and how we've we've insidiously. Uh, he said he noticed, you know, like at the grocery store, when he puts his credit card in the thing, while it's w- supposedly waiting to do the transaction, it flashes three advertisements on the little thing, and everywhere he goes on the on the tube or on a a bus, wherever you look, they've they've taken that real estate you know the powers that be are advertising to you almost everywhere and now you have you carry around this little billboard in your pocket yeah. where at every possible chance somebody's trying to sell you something yeah. and he, that's like a george saunders short story do you know that one but the old lady and she takes her grandson into town and she ignores one of the adverts oh never mind sorry no but i i'm i must have read it i i or maybe it's a cramp. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. But so then, so he's talking about how these things are sort of preying on your attention. Yeah, and and so the the focus of it and the thing that I real that really appeals to me is that we we we've uh, had some nice conversations on the on it. That if you make things, no matter what, it doesn't matter what you make. Like we're blessed with this this set of tools, mainly involving our brain and our hands and our senses. That whether you're making food or music or orgasms or tables or, you know, leather goods or do what of all the multitude of things you can make, you're engaging your your faculties in a way that then affects the rest of your life. And that's something that, you know, having having thought about it and, and b- begun writing about it, all through my life I've noticed that 
I'm one of those guys, and I come from a family of those people. You're the person in a crowd. When something breaks or when there's an issue, you're generally the person who probably has a tool on you <laughs> or you have an idea. You're, you're the problem solver, and it, it all ties together where, um, I, I mean, just by... And I came by it honestly. I, you know, I, I never planned to do it. I just grew up in a family where I was taught to make things for myself, to fix things when they're broken. Instead of, so, so when something breaks, you don't think, who do I call? You think, what do I have around here to, that I can cobble together a, a fix for this? And so that led to me, you know, I went to theater school to become an actor, but I was pretty bad uh, for a long time. But I was able to look around, and, and they said, hey, we'll pay you to build the set while you're waiting to become good enough <laughs> to play one of the forest lords and as you like it. And uh, and so it really, um, I don't know, it, it really helped to bolster a, a fruitful life that should have ended in failure several times. <laughs> I love the, the, that thing about being able to repair things. Graham Fellows, who's a, a, a British kind of actor and character comedian, did a great oh, John punk... Tut yeah, John, Shuttle. John Shuttleworth. And he did a great punk parody in the late 70s called Jilted John, which was very buzzcock talk. And he always said that his um, his dad and him didn't talk very much about emotions and it was a little bit stilted, but their, their conversation instead was always... His dad would note something that was a little bit wrong with the house. So rather than saying, hello, John, uh, hello, Graham, how are you? He'd kind of go, oh, that door's uh, still sticking a bit, isn't it? I'll just go and get, I'll get a bit of sandpaper. And that bit where you can, a, a, a practical conversation in, in a world obsessed with everything being kind of emoticon, you know, emotions all the time, that sometimes it That's might just go, my dad came around. We didn't talk about much, but I'll tell you what, that door doesn't stick anymore. Yeah. And every time that door, do, it reminds me of that great Ivor Cutler story about how to make friends. Uh -huh. which is dropping paint on someone, then saying, oh dear, I'm sorry, I seem to have dropped a pot of paint, come and have a bath up in my house. And then while they're having a bath, look at their vest and say, oh, you seem to have a hole in your vest, I'll repair that. But always use quite stiff, uh, you, you don't use, use, use sewing material, use something that's a little bit more kind of uh, uh, sinewy and a little bit rough. And every time that man wears that vest and goes, oh, there's a little itch from that, where... He'll remember you. <laughs> but um, no, I'm just, sorry, that was a, another chat. But I just it's think true. that bit, that because that, I think for a lot of us, you're not very practical, are you, Joseph? How are you? dare you? I'm very How practical. I'm not practical at all. I'm useless. I'm, I think I'm quite My wife doesn't let me. I mend things. I can mend things. But uh, the <laughs> one time that you don't mend a thing effectively mm. is the only memory no, there is. Forget. For two decades, the thing that fell down and killed I'm that dog and is the memory. So if something breaks, I'll go, oh, that's broken. We'll live with it. <laughs> yeah, keep living with it. It's like that's fallen down. We'll work around it that's every a, day. Another excellent quality of, of the human animal. <laughs> Adaptability. <Yeah. laughs> but I, I think um, it was interesting the point you well, made. Well, we about. can come in the other door. Yeah. <laughs> or do we need a door? Yeah. Do we need to go in anymore? Put a box in front of this window. We can yeah, get in and out. We'll be fine. <laughs> um, I was thinking it's an interesting point you made about this idea that it like takes you away from some sort of introspectiveness and it brings you into the world to be making physical things. I don't know where I'm going with it, but I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. Well, I about. think that's the madness of, of world politics at the moment, certainly in America and in, and in the UK, and that when you look at it in the social media world, you can see how as if that becomes your reality, and the reality, the physical reality, stops existing because yeah. everything is something... Yeah, I can, Trump would never, surely, and I, I don't want to have a go at Trump because obviously I've realised that that's led to a uh, award-winning duet, I, I, I believe. Uh, that's right. Yeah, which I just watched this morning. Well... 
that I don't think you can actually see the real duet anymore. I think it's owned by someone else, but a lovely image. But we won't go down the Trump area. But the Matthew Crawford thing hey, you're talking about, I won't, I'll explain. There was a, what was it, 2005? Oh, that yeah. duet. We, Megan and I have a, a Trump song in our show also tonight. Uh, in 2005, which I w- wouldn't have pulled that date, uh, Megan at the Emmys, at the American Television Emmy Awards, uh, they were doing uh, Emmy Idol. It was, American Idol was so- a big new thing then. And uh, because of the, they both were stars on NBC, Megan and Donald Trump performed the theme to Green Acres. Wow! And uh, and they won. I, sh- I, I and at the time, I'll tell you, they couldn't uh, have known at the time. Oh God, no! And I, my my favorite moment was this was you know I was just Mr. Mullally at the time, uh, and I was there as they were rehearsing, and they were they were trying to punch up the lyrics a little bit, and I suggested a, a lyric to them about black tar heroin. Because uh, in the song Green Acres, he's he represents the farmer side, and she represents the Park Avenue Manhattan side. Okay. And there's a, there's a moment where he's listing the things that he finds distasteful, and he's trying to come up with jokes. And I said, well, obviously black tar heroin. And he frowned at me and shook his head. And I said, you're you're not going any place, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. So what you're saying is it's your fault. Uh. I'll I'll take that on my shoulders. If it I comes think if to the it. lyric had had been in there, in fact, I I think you're looking at it totally the wrong way. I think if that lyric had been in there, they wouldn't have won. That would not have given him the lust for further power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were in, in in fortunately, thank heavens for physics, thank heavens for parallel universes, because in another one, you you saved an, an, a nation. That's and, true. And um, you stopped a war being imagined for I, a very long period of time. I only do my best. The, so I want to talk about the Matthew Crawford thing, by the way, as well, which is a, re, it's a really interesting... Just before I started reading that book, I was on the London Underground and I walked out and I, I saw the, the, the corridor, the, 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 you know, the whatever walkway thing. Uh, sorry, you're jet-lagged coming back from uh, Montreal. I'm jet-lagged coming back from Kent. I've had... Uh, Where have in, in Deal, in That's Kent, where, where, where Charles Hawtrey uh, used to live and Deal. cottage from the Carry On films. And uh, mm. so I've had 10 days in a seaside town and now I've come to London and everything's really confusing. Uh, we were saying before you got here, Josie, that walking through Soho, everyone looks like a Daniel Klaus cartoon today Aww. and I find that scary. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> then you can be like, you know, like in Ghost World, there's that woman that looks down and she says what everyone's like as they walk No, past. but they look so sad. They look as sad as the person with the goiter. Um, and I can't say it on this. I'll tell you later. A a small thing. uh, He he has a great series before Ghost World called Eight Yes, incredible. He he was in Chicago. Like, uh, a friend of mine used to work with him in the 80s. And what Uh, were they doing together? Well, my my friend is an artist, so he was kind of apprenticing around his his place. But he turned me on to him. He was in theater school with me. So I had the exciting circumstance where he was a local guy that we you know all of us weirdos knew about and then he became this massive this big hit which was very exciting and well deserved he's something else his new one is is patience isn't it i think the latest one which Mm -hmm. which uh, kind of almost starts off with uh 
possible murder. I have I've only read the first few, uh, but it's it's he, yeah he's fantastic. And he yeah. the, the world that he creates and hugely influential as well. Eight Ball is wonderful. My favorite one. I forget the 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 Death idiot Ray. and his friend uh, who the idiot always gives him terrible advice. And in one of them, he advised him to cut his penis off and throw it into the sea. <laughs> and just the final frame is the guy sitting there going, I don't know how he persuaded me to do that. <laughs> and it's just such a great beautiful punchline. But the uh, no the, the Matthew Crawford thing was as I got off the tube uh, uh, and I, I walked up the stairs and then I looked and there was just this corridor with nothing in there and I thought oh you can't be allowed to go down there I must have gone the wrong way and then I just realised that for some reason this was one of the ways to the escalator where for a very short period of time there was no advertising whatsoever and it feels so alien that you actually feel you're not allowed to go somewhere that's amazing if it's not got things being sold to you and eventually I thought and I was almost tiptoeing like going I think I have gone the right way I just think there's no perfumes or shows or anything being underwear being sold to me and that bit where that's what I think is so fascinating about that book is you just you stop noticing that there's too much yeah. information there is too much selling and that's, that's a perfect representation of that notion that w- when there's no billboard you think oh this I, I shouldn't be going down this path yeah otherwise i won't know what to buy or be angry about the fact that i don't want to buy it well i was thinking about that, that in the uk almost every sort of medium-sized music venue has now become and sponsored by this one phone network called o2 so when I was growing up, there was a music venue that was very iconic in Brixton called the Brixton Academy, and now it's the O2 Academy. And in Islington, the, I think that became an O2 Academy. And basically, everywhere now it's the O2. This, and it's it sort of breaks my heart that like young people growing up now, every aspect of their leisure is branded in that way. But mm-hmm. I don't understand this. Everything's hot. sponsored. Nothing's cheaper. Everything's more expensive. Who the fuck's getting anything from these things? That's what I don't... You sound like a 50-year-old man. No, but I do it? feel that. I do feel... Well, I feel annoyed that when, you know, my you know niece stupidly brought, bought some tickets it. for a show that I'm doing and she'd never noticed before about the fact she has to pay £6 for just the benefit of printing a ticket at mm. home and all that stuff and you go but what why? three guys are getting it all that's how it works three yeah. guys get everything oh i hate being I, old i believe that the bilderberg group is ultimately uh... it's the talking owl isn't it it's the talking owl yes. in that bloody field of the bilderberg group yes moloch but it is that that's that that moment of in because <laughs> We've been, we've been time... listening to John Ronson. <laughs> oh yeah, John's stuff is. Uh, we've we've had him and and uh, done various things him with him. Around. He is uh, followed by him. He's a dreamboat. His <laughs> psychopath test is a wonderful piece of work. And yeah, all the uh, well, you did of course. You 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 were in uh, the Men the, 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 the goats. Yeah. yeah, that was my first run-in with his work. Oh yeah. And that is a beautiful look at various different people, quite high up in the army, running at walls in the hope that they may well be able to pass through them. It's the truth. There's only one way to find out that you can't <laughs> <laughs> yeah why should we trust people you know david hume the philosopher he would have said well just because the sun no, comes up every david day hume... so the same way maybe the wall will be more yeah but david hume was really like we should trust people though yeah i know but what he was saying is maybe just run at the wall today just in case okay your book which is good clean fun so <laughs> this is the third book this is uh the most woodworky book isn't it of of the of the trilogy? Certainly, yeah. There, there's a uh, a nice bit about woodworking in the in my first book, "Paddle Your Own Canoe." But this book, uh, the first two books, you know, have illustrations in them, but they're you know full of they're all prose. And then this book is 
a larger format full of photos and how-to, and it's more like a textbook. So it's a real manual. It is, yeah. But it's more fun than just getting a boring manual. It's super fun. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm a, a weirdo smartass, and I've been given the opportunity to write basically a school book. And so it's full of jokes. And, like, it's a... I, I wish every class in school had a book this fun, because I think we'd all spend a lot more time in school. Um, it, it's the result of, it came about a lot of, there was a lot of clamor from my fans to do, for me to do a woodworking book. And also my showbiz life uh, was keeping me out of my shop. I, I really was missing just shop time, you know. Mm. And so I, I realized that if I did a woodworking book, I could tell everybody to fuck off, and I'm going to go spend four months in my shop. For work? To, yeah. For it, legit work? Yes, I could tell the machine, you can't touch me because mm. I'm, I'm going to be making income. I'm beating you at your own game. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so you know, the, there's a lot of writing in the book about wood, about my own history with woodworking, uh, about setting up your own shop. And then, um, and then there are thirteen projects, how to you know how to make everything from whiskey coasters to like a a, a really nice bed, a knockdown craftsman bed, a dining chair, a slab table. That's so big. Those are massive projects. They are. And uh, another another aspect of the book is um, it's never for me. It's it's never been a solitary effort. Uh, I, I'm always part of a community of people who make things. And my shop, once Parks and Recreation started, I peopled my shop with other woodworkers so that the shop could continue producing even while I was off uh, working on television. And so I have, at the moment, there are six woodworkers there, and so they all have a project in the book. My dad and my brother each have a project in the book. And uh, Michelle from Tasmania has a project in the book. And so it was a way to say, not only is this an incredibly fun and, and fruitful thing to do in your life, but if you do it with other people, you learn more, you're going to make mistakes. It's much more enjoyable to make mistakes with others because you realize you're not a failure, you don't suck, it's, it's human nature. Uh, it's, you're not going to learn anything without making the mistakes. And so there's a chapter in the book, we, we, we hold a cookout every couple months at the shop. So there's a cookout chapter with recipes. And so it's very communal. Um, and I, I, I'm just thrilled with it. And then there's also just comedy bits. On top of that, there are eight uh, hero visits where I go. It's something that I just really enjoy about, about getting to be a writer is I immediately capitalized on the opportunity to call up somebody like Yoko or uh, or Laurie Anderson and say, "Hey, I want to write about you in my book. Like, I just be, I want to lionize you. Can we have lunch?" And th and sometimes they say yes. And they have to go. Well, it's a legit book. Yeah, exactly. I have to do it now. You tell them your publisher. <laughs> <laughs> they check it. They ring you back. And so is Yoko Ono in the book? Did you meet up with her? She's in my last book. Oh, I'm so sorry. She Yoko and I. Uh, Megan deserves the credit for that. Megan is a, a an amazing uh, art collector, and so I don't know. Early on in our relationship, in 
2003 or so, we went to an opening of an art show of Yoko's in Santa Monica, and turned out Yoko was a big fan of Will and Grace. So we met, we became friends, and Sean was there as well. So we all went and hung out, and it, and Megan and Yoko went in, in their bed in her bedroom, and just were in there giggling and like going through the closet. And Sean and I sat out on the patio and smoked cigarettes and we're, <laughs> we're, it was, it was. Every a, part of this is really uh, imaginatively rich for me. It was. Like just the fact that Yoko would be like, oh, I'm a big fan of Will and Grace delights me. But was, that, that's the crazy. way that artists get sectioned off. Everyone is meant to be a different... Like, the fact that you're weird because you make stuff and you do jigsaws and you have a life that is actually normal. It, with Yoko Ono, the idea... It's like me finding out that Magritte used to watch The Honeymooners. Right. There's kind of a thing where yes, you go, you think, these people, great scientists, great artists, they are in a special world where whatever you may enjoy will not be enjoyed mm. by them. They will look down... And then this creates this kind of divide. In, yeah, it, in truth, that's that's what happened with me and George Saunders is that he said some really uh, satisfying, gratifying things about my work on Parks and Recreation, namely that he felt like Ron Swanson, which, you know, was partly me and, and partly our, our brilliant writers. He, he felt that this character that he knew from the Midwest was represented for the first time successfully. Wow. That he said, you know, people have tried to take a swing at this guy for decades, and they always miss because they always go for low-hanging fruit where they make him a misogynist. Or well, they're not making it a real person, are they? Right. So they sort of think we'll put this person, but actually, what's so brilliant about it is it's real and textured and yeah. So for, I mean, even things I can't fathom, he just he he said, I I know you, like I know that I like you for how you represented this character, and. As you said, that's incredibly thrilling. Where you're like, I'm so glad that you watch some NBC, <laughs> you know, comedy. You can't imagine it. It's like, no, no, you're sitting in a little shed. Yeah. Writing some stuff about a ghost, mate. Should, should you're you... writing the brain-dead megaphone. Exactly. <laughs> you hate all of us who populate this tube. Uh, <laughs> um, and so uh, I've, I've lost where I began. Oh, no, oh, sorry, we were talking, talking about the sorry, division between that this kind of, you know, novelists, artists, scientists, whatever, we they, 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 are, they are meant to be in, uh, in in a separate world. But then we find out that obviously there's loads of shaded area between the, the, just the fact that you may well be creating a great work of absurdism or sculpture or doesn't mean that you're then going to not watch a primetime sitcom. Right. Or you, you might, you know, your favorite snack might be the same crisps that everybody goes crazy for. Yeah. Uh, and it, But the... Um, I, I, I'm back on track. The, there, there are eight chapters in the book where I visit woodworking heroes. Uh, there's a guy named Christian Bexfort in Maine who was actually on Parks and Rec. Uh, there was a woodworking episode where we had a woodworking show and Ron won Best Chair. And uh, at one point he freaks out and says, Oh my God, it's Christian Bexfort, the modern master of the shaker style and, yes, the, I and the camera whips over to him and he looks like ichabod crane he's standing there holding a cup of tea with the tea bag dangling and there's nobody around him and ron's like oh i don't want to bother him. yeah yeah it's super nerdy um so he's in the book uh well so he really is the modern master of the... he is yeah he's like he's somebody who I was able to invite, like, we flew him in from Maine to be on the show because wow. he was my hero. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I learned from his, his work in magazines and books for many years. Um, there's a woman named Mira Nakashima, whose dad, George Nakashima, was one of the massive like uh, studio furniture heroes of the last century, and she's still running his operation in Pennsylvania. There's a guy named Peter Galbert who is the uh, he's kind of the the Windsor chair stud in in the states right now. Sure, Mr. Windsor chair. He's Mr. Windsor chair at the moment. So th- this is so cool that what you're able to do then is bring these things that aren't bring these people who aren't necessarily that well known outside of this field. Mm-hmm to like a much broader audience it yeah i mean it's it's very communal and i you know it's something that's going on like our society has made it clear that they're hungering especially the younger generation they're like okay we've had enough advertisement on our phones isn't there something we can make you know mm-hmm. teach me to knit <laughs> i've had enough pokemon and um but also i i think it's a lot of respect for real craft and real kind of slowness of pace and kind of focus and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's uh, in a sense perhaps the industrial revolution took us to this place where we've you know succeeded in selling ourselves so much garbage that ends up in the landfill that now there's a bit of a reversal where the mm-hmm. people are saying, isn't there isn't there a chair I can uh, I Just can have fabricate forever. that Yeah, I've, I read in a book about this guy who had his grandfather's chair. What is that like? How do I get one of those? Um, and a, a, another thing that I love about this book is that there's an old-fashioned notion. As I began pitching it, uh, people would say, oh, a book for, like, dads in their garage. And I would say, no, this is everybody. Like, the two best woodworkers in my shop are women. Um, these hero chapters, Laura, Laura, Mira, the three three of them are women, uh, it's it's there's a real sense of girl power to this book as well, because it's something for everybody, you know, not just woodworking but all kinds of making stuff. Mm. It's going. It's it doesn't matter, you know, where you come from or what your sex is. Everybody is enjoying getting their hands reengaged. Do you think people assume a kind of like because of Ron Swanson, like that there's a kind of like masculinity to you that's like quite exclusive or something well I, def- I definitely get pegged with a machismo that you know i i'm i'm built like i look the way i do and i you know what i mean i understand that i have like a stentorian voice or whatever sure. i understand that i'm i'm constructed to play a sheriff but <laughs> but that's that's kind of where it ends. I mean, I yeah. I am not a sheriff. I don't uh I always say that I would rather shake hands or dance with you be- long before I would want to punch you. Um I, like long before, like there's it's still there somewhere. Well, sure. I mean, as with but, anybody, but I Do you quite enjoy subverting it then? Kind of. I mean, I I I am um I'm much more on the side of of promoting, you know, I'm a real lefty, and and, uh, Ron was a libertarian. Mm -hmm. The scariest thing is there's a percentage of libertarians in the States who didn't understand the comedy of Ron Swanson. And they said, finally, someone has written a champion for for our sect. And those people get really upset with me when they discover that that's not me, and that... 
and that that was a joke. And it's a comedy show. <laughs> a a goddamn, in a yeah, comedy like show. it's brilliant comedy, and they're like, "No, that's my life. God damn you!" God. But it must be an annoyance though for people for the, the the kind of. I mean, I realize that now Fox News is seen as a as a liberal enclave since Trump has just you know made that decision. But it's for. Anyone in Hollywood, anyone working in, in the media actor, there's this whole kind of, oh, well, they would say that. We know how these liberal people who can't do anything. But as you were saying, your kind of background, your ability to, to make stuff means that you're the worst kind of uh, person on the left for easy dismissal yeah. because of your life experience and what you actually do. So how do you find that? I mean, trying to be political. I mean, in the show that you're doing, that you're touring at the moment, does that has politics. And you were saying there's a, there's a Trump song and stuff. How do you get them the any kind of uh, non-mainstream message out in a, a media that seems well increasingly myopic? Megan and I both, I think, would say we're not uh, we're we're not good enough journalists to uh, to, to weigh in that heavily um, when it comes to politics. I mean, Trump is such low-hanging fruit. You know, it, it it would be idiotic to do a comedy show right now and not do some Trump material because it's just hanging there. If you don't pick it, it's going to go to waste. Um, but he's he's so easy to make fun of. We just we literally wrote a song that's a list of facts about Donald <laughs> Trump, and it's the funniest thing in the show. I mean, people are rolling in the aisles. Um, but I I sort of try you know. I, I can't even begin to keep up with the news cycle because it's 24-7. And so instead of try to do that, we just try to weigh in uh, on the side of decency and open-mindedness and, and you know, generally uh, do battle against um, against stereotypes and bigotry. Uh, and because it's it's all of a piece, you know. Um, I, I, I try not to judge like for example, um, we do material about religion, and I, I I I write about it in my books, and I say, look, if you're religious, great. I have I have no beef. I would never judge someone, even if you, even if your religion sounds so silly, like you have a rabbit in your yard and that you think is God. Great, whatever you want to do, if it brings you solace, wonderful. If you try to then bring that into the public sphere and and go to a city council meeting and say we should all worship my rabbit before the football game then then that's something that we can have a beef about and i think then i think you're a jackass and i'll say so if it's uh, a really good rabbit keep it oh, yourself god i've seen a really the moment you said that all i imagined was a kind of slightly dystopian future with a kind of cormac mccarthy road and that point where you look at the rabbit that is your god and realize you have to eat your own rabbit for your survival and there you eat your own god have you read that poem? i've got to stop imagining these dystopian futures with rabbit death have you read that poem that's like we're here to see the rabbit which rabbit the people say the last rabbit the last rabbit in the world do you know no. that? No. I can't remember who it's by. I, well, like, I think it's called After Pervert. When I was a little kid. Well played. Thank you. <laughs> when I was a little kid, my mum used to really want us to be like very accomplished, like very Jane Austen. Like very, she was like very wanted us to social climb. So she would get us to learn poems and enter competitions in the Beckenham Festival. And I had to say, we are going to see the rabbit. Which rabbit? <laughs> the last rabbit. The last rabbit in England. And it was behind a fence. I remember that. And the rabbit's very scared and it runs away. 
Wow. So there's a real moral here, guys. Yeah. I wish you hadn't brought up rabbits, by the way, because you've made it very depressing. I would there's love so to much ask... rabbit death with your rabbit day. They used to yeah, call them connies. Yeah. Mm. And in, they had to stop because it sounded too rude. In some of my favorite books, the uh, Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Maturin series, the seafaring novels, they often go ashore to bag a brace of connies for dinner. What's your favorite of those books? I could, I boy, I, don't, I couldn't. Tell. I mean, there's 21 of them. It, it, it's it's a career. And tell us now, straight away. To get through them, and I, I would hate to be made to pick a favorite. Sorry. We want to ask you about what books that we've you run love. out of time. Oh no, almost. We meant to ask quickly. about, but we've talked lots about the. This is well, we're, a couple of things. On, we do a on lot of chatting book, every time. In terms of, uh, we don't promise professionalism, and we never will. Um, <laughs> the the book where, in terms of creating stuff. Like I was just down at the the Turner Contemporary Gallery down at Margate, which is a great gallery, by the way. If you get a chance to go down, been, go down to Margate. It's great. There. It's lovely. It's isn't amazing. It? Why were you in Margate? Um, a few months ago. Just we, having a great time. We love London. Yeah, we uh, we have these good friends, um, these artists who, besides being wonderful to spend time with, also know what's going on. Yeah. And one of them had a couple pieces in a sh- in that show. It's all, the... all about circles. Oh, that's why I saw it. It's fantastic. It's so good. One of the best group shows I've ever seen. And uh, and also the best... Is it still on? Yeah. The best fish and chips I've had in my life was sitting on at, at, on the quay in, uh, in Margate. Did you go to Dreamland? No, we were... Oh, Megan was Dreamland heartbroken. So... I've got friends. It doesn't necessarily... It's one of those things where, because I think it's not doing well financially yourself, it's really done well, and then after an hour you go, oh, the toilets are broken now, and they've run out of ice cream. Sure. So it's got a very nice English post-war feel to it. My um, friend works there. She's a performance artist. But it's she got all these up. old pinball machines. Oh. And they are proper, you know, the ones where you think, I wonder if Chuck Berry ever played this. Yeah. But he um, didn't. But it, it, that... There's that beautiful thing in in the exhibition of which I've not I forget the name of the artist, the guy who uh, put basically just a a, a a concrete pipe in the middle of a desert, mm-hmm. and then takes different images basically just through the pipe and the way that the light changes the shadows and uh, and it's it's a really fantastic. It's similar to the James Turrell uh, yeah. notion where the things you can do just with the progression of light and the sun. Mm. It can be incredibly moving and uh, inexpensive. You don't have to go buy any paint. No, that's good as And a well. beautiful, the, the opening was the, the library. Most, <laughs> that's right. Gets the most from it. Sorry, Lynn. The library, at the, I forget the name of the artist who's done this beautiful uh, batik, all these different batik covered books, really wonderful colours. And on every spine is the name of uh, someone uh, prominent who uh, was an immigrant in the UK, someone, hey. someone who's a refugee. Or, or... Is that weird me going, way? And, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's really beautifully done. And uh, yeah, that mixture of dreamland, fish and chips, and uh, and then and the contemporary circular art. Wow! And we I, and I also I'm a huge fan of Timothy Spall, so oh, yeah. I, was, I was walking around Margate muttering as though I were Mr. Turner himself. Of course. Did you go to the Shell House? Yes, we did. That's cool. The Shell the, House, the yeah. Shell yeah. Grotto. Shell Grotto. Do is... you know what you should do? There's a theatre called the Tom Thumb Theatre. And a friend of a friend runs it. It's absolutely tiny. It's about forty seats. If you're ever in, you think sod it, I'll put on a secret show. You should do it. It's the most delightful, delightful little space in Cliftonville. Cliftonville. I'm yeah. on it. 
I saw, listen, I'll sort it out for you. It's on the I'll list. I'll take 60% of the progress. <laughs> There's a great book, actually, about that area, the kind of Thanet area, which, again, I've oh, forgotten Thanet. the name, but it's it's a guy who talks about the, the murders and the mysteries and the great... Um, the artist who spent his life in a uh, uh, an asylum. He murdered his father. Dad. Uh, Richard Dad, is it? Something oh, like that. I I don't know. I'll get them to look it up. Alan Brown, John... John, by the way, was the guy who wrote the poem about the rabbits. The thing, the reason rabbits. I brought up the turn of contemporary thing was my son, of course, wanted to buy the origami set, not realising that it's basically a small leaflet and loads of pieces of paper, right. and that actually everything apart from the penguin is really, really hard. So what I wanted to check was, what annoyed me about this origami book was, it always has stage that you go, yeah, fold that over, yeah, fold that over, okay, then I do that corner, and then it has one picture where you go, I have no idea where those arrows go, none of this makes sense. It's the old kind of cartoon where the scientist shows an equation and in the middle it just says and then the magic happens and it kind of i wanted to check that with your new book mm -hmm. there's yeah, not sure a point where i go okay right so i've chiseled that down so i've made that and then i suddenly go how's it gone from just a load of bits of wood to this ornate table that you you don't do sudden jumps from number four to number five which well, are inexplicable that's that's a poignant question because it's an important part of of woodworking instruction that i've always appreciated there there are not there aren't magic jumps, but you always do want to leave out a little bit of information, because if you spoon feed the whole thing, it's just like it's just like with a cooking recipe. Eventually, there's an element of well, the recipe called for half a teaspoon of this, but I found six pinches to be more to my taste, and so that was it, it was interesting creating my first printed instructions. Um, and and by and large, there shouldn't be too much hair pulling in the book, but hopefully there are a few moments where you've got to say, oh, no, wait a second. I have to do a little bit of math here for myself. But it, sh it should all be perfectly doable. My wife is really going to eventually hate you because I know that now my main mission is to try and make a table. And she's going to look down at this increasing, disgusting, again, post-apocalypse lumber yard that our small back garden's going to become. And she's going to say, it was that podcast that did it. Well. This insanity of carpentry. I'll look forward to her rebuke. She'll never find her way out of the wood pile. <laughs> um, um, I wanted to, I, do we have time to ask you about books? We've got about two minutes. Because okay, perfect. Because it's got like a show to, to do about. with the Hammersmith Apollo. I can't believe I'm, I really... It sounds great as well. I didn't know. Yeah, I'm going to see King Crimson tonight instead. That doesn't suck. I know, but it's kind of... <laughs> it's it's You know that bit where you go... Because we were talking about Brian Eno briefly before, and that bit where you say those moments of, of marvelling at creation where the, there was a festival called Blue Dot, which was about a month ago, and it was at Jodrell Bank where the Lovell Telescope is, and whatever bands you were watching, even if you got slightly bored of the band, I did not public service broadcasting an amazing uh, British band mixing up kind of uh, fantastic music with weird samples of 1940s and 1950s things. Every now and again, you just look away and look at a great big radio telescope with an installation by Brian Eno on it and go, man, this is living. Yeah. If this isn't nice, what is? What is? I want um, to ask you about books. Have you got any books that you would recommend for everyone, that you would buy for everyone? Well, yeah, the, the great leader of that list is Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer. He's my favorite writer. He writes fiction, poetry, and essays. And he is, if everyone read Wendell Berry, we'd be in such better shape. He's, his write, he's so wise. His writing is so rife with common sense and love for humanity, but he's also really funny. 
Um, he came to uh, he came to light in the '70s with a a book called The Unsettling of America, and he grew up on this tobacco farm, and just happened to, to become this incredible. He had a great talent for writing, and he stayed on the farm and used his talent. Like all of his fiction is set in this sort of fictional farm community. And then all of his essays are just about things that are going on in the world from a farmer's point of view. And they're, they're incredibly moving. I, um, I'm i crazy about him. He's also in my last book, Gumption. Um, and as George Saunders probably gets a lot of play. I, I, uh, I'm nuts about the book you mentioned, Braid, Brain Dead Megaphone. Um, Sarah Vowell. Oh, yeah. Is, uh, one I've of my... had her radio stuff quite a lot. She, her books are amazing. Which of hers would you recommend first? Oh, gosh. Uh, the, um, the last one, which, uh, it's about, um, it's about, it's about the, uh, the, the Marquis de Lafayette. I can't think of the title of it. Her titles are very clever. Oh, I think I've heard her talking about it. She does. She, she's obsessed with history, so yeah. she'll she'll do she'll like she has a great book about Hawaii and how it came to exist uh, as an American state. Um, but she'll take a piece of history and then write about it with with this really slightly cantankerous nerdy point of view that is so funny and human. So she goes around and she tells you the history of Lafayette and how how much he contributed to the Revolutionary War effort and uh, sort of holds that up against uh, contemporary American attitudes towards France and it's it's I cry it at the end of it. It's really moving and and funny and delicious. Um, I, I also just love uh, any fictional series that I can. I love that idea that you get lost in this world, starting as a kid with Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia, and then like Game of Thrones. I read all those books uh, and enjoyed them so much that I have yet to watch the TV show because I know I'll be disappointed. And people won't look like how you imagine. Yeah, looked. and I can't. I will. I know that I'll. I'll uh, adore the show, but I'll wait some years to watch it so that. It's... Why don't you get in it? Send him an email. I uh I, I know one of the producers and I from the books, it's funny, I, I did at one point say this role of uh, Davos Seaworth uh, seems like something I could take a swing at. And then they cast a much better British actor, uh, but who I we look very much alike, which I found satisfying. Um, but then that's harsh because it's like I was right, but well, not right enough. I, yeah, I mean I, I uh I could have I could have uh, tried harder I suppose but um, I I love get, I love the Patrick O'Brien books the Hornblower books sure. by C S Forrester um, I love that idea when and, and Wendell Berry his whole body of fiction which is like dozens of short stories and I want to say I don't know sixteen novels I mean it's wow. a, it's a massive amount and. Uh, it all just continues to color in this this mural of this small town covering like 120 years. So there are three main families, and you just one short story will be about this this kid in 1908, you know, who has has a hog slaughter go awry, 
and then the next novel will be about his grandson in 1972 dealing with you know a, a farming accident you know and it just keep, I, I I love that sense that there's still more coming you yeah. know that you get to keep I love the idea when people decide to respect their own fictional world that much. You know, that they're like, no, this is my universe, it's still going to exist, I'm allowed to play with any of it. Yeah. You know? That's very satisfying. Yeah. We'll have to okay, end Okay, sorry, there. sorry. No, don't be sorry. It's just, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank and, you. My uh, pleasure. The, uh, obviously, it will have, by the time people hear this, the, it will have passed, but you, I hope you have a wonderful time at the Olympia Theatre in Dublin and uh, Hammersmith Apollo, thank which you. is a beautiful uh, venue. Uh, if you can, ask them if they can get the uh, the organ to rise up from the middle of the stage. If there's any point you need, uh, they, okay. they're really picky about that. If there's... But have once managed to get the organ to rise up, and it's, it's quite a treat, isn't it, Josie? You were there, I think. No, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, maybe maybe that's why they let us have the organ I that do year. Wheelands. Wheelands always... is great, but I don't know anywhere that big. If, if a lull occurs in the show at any point... Get the organ out. I'll say, well, what about this organ? I've heard so much about <laughs> And everyone will be like... <laughs> <laughs> Finally! Thank you very much, Josie Long. Thank you very much, Nick Hoffman, And thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much for listening to our Nick Offman episode. And don't forget, you can listen to all of the book shambles we've made so far by going to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. So to be in with a chance of winning a copy of Nick Offman's latest book, all you need to do is tweet about this week's episode with the hashtag BookShambles and we will choose three of those tweets and send them copies of the book. And remember, all of the people who support us through Patreon every single week are in a prize draw to win a box of books. And thank you very much also to everyone who's given us one-off contributions via PayPal. That's enough begging. So, thank you very much, first of all, to those who've donated via PayPal, who've included Alistair Richards, Denise Gannon, Morag McCalland, and Wayne Rayner. And our Patreon supporters, Josie, have been... Lucy Pickford, Thomas Hale, Fee Cooper, Adam Jones, Richard Ash, and Shona Penny. And this week's winner of a big box of books is Fee Cooper. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, and if you were the winner of our Patreon Box of Books prize, then the best way to get in contact with us is either via our Twitter account, which is at Cosmic Genome, or you can go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, have a look on that page, and you'll be able to contact us there so we can get your address and send the books to you. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 